0: calls to worship from Psalm 105 verses 1 through 3. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let's obey the Lord and do that this morning. Let's sing, Oh, great God. Do are work?
1: Welcome, everyone, to this gathering of Grace Community Church, and let me welcome you with these verses from Psalm 96. I haven't gotten to read this to y'all in a while. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering. And come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. And I love this scripture because this is the reason that we gather up this morning. We gather up so that we can ascribe to God glory and strength and the glory that's due his name. Uh, we're here to worship Jesus Christ. And so I love this scripture as a call. To come and let's worship him together through the singing of these songs, through prayer together, through the preaching of his word, let's worship Jesus Christ. And we're about to spend some time in prayer, but before we do, let me make a quick announcement. Uh, we're very soon about to move into adding members, some new members to Grace Community Church. There's several, several of you that have already contacted that, um, that you have expressed a desire to join this church. And we're about to enter into that time soon where we do those uh, membership interviews and those classes, those kind of things. And so we don't want anybody to slip through the cracks. If there's someone that if you have not been contacted about that and, uh, and you desire to join the church, please let us know. Just let myself or Dustin or Greg know uh, so that we won't miss you. We're about to pray. And uh, 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ Jesus suffered One time, once for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And what a sweet verse that reminds us of the gift of the gospel, that that when Christ died, when he suffered on that cross, he died so that he could bring us to God, so that we could be brought near to God. And one expression of that is that we get to pray. We get to call out to the Lord in prayer. And so we're about to do that together here in just a moment. <clears throat> I want to read this verse to you in Acts 12. Acts 12, verse 12. says this. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. So this is Peter broken out of jail by the angel in the middle of the night. And so he goes to the house of Mary. Why did he go there? It says he... He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And I love that sweet picture of the church being devoted to corporate prayer. Many of them were gathered together, and they were praying. They were calling out to God. They knew that Christ had suffered for them. He had died for them, that he might bring them to God. And then one expression of that is that they get to pray. They get to call out to God in prayer Together, And so we're about to do that now. We're about to call out to the Lord in prayer. I want to encourage you to lean in with hearts full of faith and love for God. And let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's pray. God, thank you for this sweet, this sweet privilege to get to come before you. God, I thank you for the privilege of prayer. And Lord, we want to approach you now. And Lord, we don't do it flippantly. We don't do it flippantly, Lord. God, we tremble before you. You're the the great God of highest heaven, Lord. You're our great God that Spoke into existence all things. The mountains melt like wax at your presence. So, Lord, we don't come flippantly. And we don't come because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercy. Thank you, Lord, for letting us come before you. We exalt you, Lord. You're our faithful God that keeps your word every single promise you've ever spoken. You're the mighty one that does whatever you please. Lord, you're the unstoppable one, God, that when you have a plan, you have a purpose, God, and a a promise is given out, Lord, that nothing can stop you and your purpose. And so we worship you, Lord, almighty one, And God, we praise you that you are just, and you're the justifier of the ungodly. Thank you for the cross, Lord, where your justice is put on display, Lord, that that you don't take sin lightly, that you pour out wrath on sin, either on Christ or in hell forever. And yet, we praise you, God, that you're the justifier of the ungodly, that you you made a way that ungodly people like us, wicked people like us, could be rescued from hell, could be brought even into your family, Lord. You're merciful and kind. God, thank you for your kindness. We worship you this morning, Lord. Now, I lift up our church to you. We want to be a church that, that brings you glory, that's a light in this world. We desire, Lord, that we would be a church that brings, that brings you great pleasure. We want to be a people of your presence. And I pray that you would do that, that you would draw near to us, God. And you would make us a people, Lord, that it's clear that you dwell in our midst, that you are with us like you promised. You said that you would be with us and you would never leave us and never forsake us, that you would be with us to the ends of the age. God, I pray that you would make that so obvious. Make it so obvious that we're we're your people. We belong to you and you're with us, Lord. Lord, I pray for every individual here that you would... Teach us what it's like to meet with you in the secret place and to know your presence, God, with with open Bibles and calling out to you in prayer, God, that we would know your presence in that secret place. God, make us a people that, that love and long to draw near to our God. You're the fountain of all joy. And I pray, God, you teach us to go there to drink deeply from that fountain and find everlasting joy. God, I pray that you would bless us with unity and love for one another, Lord. God, I praise you that you've done that in so many ways already. You have blessed us with so much unity, God, so much care for each other as a body. But, Lord, I pray that you would increase it more and more, increase our love for one another. God, please protect us from the divisiveness of the enemy, all of Satan's schemes, all demonic plans, God, to to ruin and divide your church. God, I pray that you would destroy them. You said that your people would be known as yours, as belonging to you by the love that we have for one another. God, please increase that love more and more. Lord, I think about in your word Paul's concerns that he had a a deep daily anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and he's not weak. Who's not made to stumble and he doesn't burn with indignation. Lord, please put that same holy anxiety in us to care for your church, to care for your people, to be indignant when when people are led astray, to weep with those who weep. Please, God, bless us with that. God, I pray that you would make us fishers of men. You promised that if we followed you, that you would make us fishers of men. God, make us faithful. Make us bold proclaimers of your word. God, I pray that you would kill the sin in us that that desires so strongly just to please men. At your expense, God, just to please men. God, I pray that you'd kill that sin in us. You would deal with it in us, Lord, and make us bold proclaimers of your gospel. Deal with our cowardice, Lord. Deal with our apathy and our indifference, Lord. And God, I pray that you'd fill our hearts with, with passion to make you known in this world, in our families, in our job situations, schools, God, in all nations, Lord. Give us a heart, Lord, to be fishers of men. God, I pray that you would make us a church that extends out your gospel and your light to many generations. God, our children and our children's children, Lord, I pray that they would would rise up to love you and adore you and be used by you for your glory in this world. Lord, all the disgrace to your name that we've seen in this world of the mocking of of children that are raised up in this environment, Lord, and yet don't follow you. God, I pray that you you would prove the world wrong in that, Lord, and use us for that, God. Raise up a generation. Raise up children that love and adore you from a young age and send them out into a dark world as light to penetrate darkness, Lord. Please bless our children. God, I pray for our land, Lord, so much turmoil and division, God, and sin and rebellion against you. So much of it, Lord. God, I pray that you would give us that, give us that change, God, that's rooted in your gospel. Where your, where your spirit is poured out from on high. And therefore justice and peace reigns. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit, Lord. And that you would save many souls, God. Give us, a, give us a revival. Give us an awakening in this land. Build your church, God, in this land, please. Lord, I pray for the nations. And I praise you, God, that you've let us be connected to so many in the nations. In China and, and Iraq and Peru. God, I pray for these nations, for Moldova, God. I pray for these nations that that you would be exalted in those places and you would bless the laborers that are there, our brothers and sisters, God, that we had there. Please bless them, Lord. Raise up your church in that place. Save souls in those places, Lord. God, I pray specifically for our brother and sister in China. That you would help them to not fear in this season where people were being kicked out of the country, God, and interrogated and all this stuff. God, I pray that they would not fear, but that their trust would be in you. That you would strengthen our brother and strengthen our sister, Lord, that they would hope in you, that they, that they would long for you right in the midst of all of that. And you'd make them fruitful, God, in the land of affliction. Make them fruitful, Lord, please. God, I pray for these church gatherings that that you would bring us to a place, God, please. We long to be brought to a place where, where all of us together as a church can meet again and partake of communion together. God, we long for that moment. Please, God, grant us that. And until then, Lord, God, we thank you for these gatherings. We thank you, Lord, for getting to meet right now and hear the preaching of your word and worship together. God, please come. Come in this time and be exalted in all that we do here. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's
0: stand together and let's sing to the Lord. Okay. Yeah.
2: I want to welcome everyone this morning, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 2, to Psalm 2. Let's ask the Lord for help as we open his word together this morning, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, you are our God. You are our King. You are our Judge. You are our Savior. Jesus, You have become for us righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, redemption. Lord, Your Word says that You are all to us. Lord, we come today and we gather to worship You. To bring glory to You, our God and our King. And we come now to your word, Lord. We desire to learn as your sons and daughters. We desire to be instructed. Lord, we thank you for your word. That you are a God who has spoken. You are a God who has revealed himself. Lord, we don't have to guess about what kind of God you are. Lord, you've made it known exceedingly clear in your word. And we ask this day, Lord, that you would be faithful to your word. Lord, I ask that you would help me to faithfully say what you say, Lord. And we ask that you would be faithful to your word, Lord. You brought us forth by the the word of truth. Lord, you saved us through your word. Jesus, you prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth. And we ask that this day, Lord, sanctify us through the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray today for the church that the hearts of your disciples would be strengthened. Lord, as we open Psalm 2 this morning, we pray that you would warn us from heaven, that you would woo us, Lord, with your grace, that you would call us to yourself. And that your word would go forth with power, Lord, and efficacy, God, that you would cause it to do what you mean it to do in our hearts this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 2, and we're going to read our passage together this morning, and by far... This will be the most important words that you're going to hear in the next hour Is these are God-breathed words from heaven without error. This is the Word of the Lord. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together I have set my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way. For His wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is God's Word to our local church this morning. Psalm 2. Now, what my day looked like yesterday more than any other sermon in probably six months, maybe to a year, is cutting all kind of stuff. Psalm 2. It has some of the most weighty doctrinal themes in Psalm two in seed form of anywhere else in Scripture. This is a this is a high powered, concentrated, uh, glorious Psalm that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we got a lot of co- lot to cover this morning. I got to move faster, uh, even than I'm doing so far. Before we unpack these words together this morning. I want to mention several features of Psalm 2 that I want you to be aware of before we dig into the text. And so some of you have study guides. Some of you might be taking notes. I want you to jot these down. Uh, these are, these are three, three words. They all start with a P so you can get them down easy. Go back later and dig into this for yourself. First feature that I want to mention is the word preface. Psalm 2. Psalm, psalm 2 is the second psalm, but Psalm 2 was not the second psalm written. Okay? The, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, as, as we know it, collectively, 150 psalms, five books of psalms, 150 total. It was not collected, it was not compiled chronologically. In other words, Psalm 1 is not the earliest psalm, and Psalm 150 is not the last psalm, that was written. In fact, the oldest psalm that we have is Psalm 90, the psalm of Moses. And so the book of psalms that we're we're opening this morning, it spans over a thousand year period from Moses, Psalm 90, to the exile. There's psalms written in the midst of Israel's exile, about a thousand year period. And so if psalms is the hymn book of ancient Israel, and I think that's a good way to think about it, this hymn book took a thousand years to complete. And it wasn't put together chronologically. We don't know who exactly compiled the book of Psalms, who put them in their current order. Ezra is a really good candidate for this inspired compilation, this inspired redactor, but we can't be sure. We don't know. But what we do know is that the final form of the book of Psalms, when it was put together, it was not put together chronologically, it was put together thematically. It was not arranged chronologically, it was put together thematically. You can trace the themes throughout the book of Psalms. And so the placement of Psalm 2 was intentional. And I want to draw our attention to this. Taking this a step further, modern scholars agree, and modern scholars hardly agree about anything, but they agree about this, that there's a partnership between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that they are meant to be taken together as a preface or an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, to the Psalter, a thematic introduction to the book of Psalms. And I want to mention just a few reasons why that's the prevailing view. And it's not just a modern view. This was the view of Charles Spurgeon 150 years ago. This was the view of Matthew Henry 150 years before that. Psalm 1 and 2 go together as an introduction to the book of Psalms. I want you to think about some of the similarities. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 mention two groups. They bust All of humanity into these two groups, the righteous and the wicked. They're headed towards these two destinies. The righteous are going to be blessed. The wicked are going to be judged. And there's a literary feature that I want to draw your attention to. The very last word in Psalm 2 is blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's actually almost the same exact wording of the way that Psalm 1 starts. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then Psalm 2 ends in the same way that Psalm 1 starts. And that's a literary feature called an inclusio. They're inspired bookends that you're supposed to take this stuff together And so I want you to think about this. Psalm 1 shows us the blessedness of the righteous as it relates to the righteous relationship with the Word of God. Psalm 2 shows us the blessedness of the righteous as it relates to the relationship to God's Christ, to the Messiah. And this is our introduction to the book of Psalms. These are, uh, Steve Lawson calls this the twin pillars of true worship. That the righteous must relate rightly to both things, to God's word and God's Christ. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's Psalm 1. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2. Matthew Henry says this, The righteous must be subject to both the Torah and the Mediator. So these things go together. God's Word, God's Christ. In fact, there are three Psalms in the book of Psalms that you can categorize as Torah Psalms. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. And each time a a Torah Psalm occurs, There's a kingship psalm right beside it. It happens Psalm 1, Psalm 2. It happens Psalm 18 and Psalm 19. And it happens again Psalm 118, Psalm 119. We must relate rightly to God's Word. And we must relate rightly to God's Christ. This is the foundation of true worship. This is a preface to the book of Psalms. The second feature, and I'll mention this quickly, is prophecy. Prophecy. There's no heading over uh, Psalm two in the Hebrew text, but when this Psalm is quoted in Acts four, the the writer the the, the person quoting it attributes it to, to David, as David said in the second Psalm. And so the historical context for Psalm two is King David in ancient. Israel. It describes King David's triumphs over the raging nations. But the problem is, and it's not really a problem, it's just something that we have to work through, is that there's some words in this psalm that go way beyond King David. There's words in this psalm that King David cannot fulfill. And you can draw your attention just really quick to verse 7 and verse 8. We have Yahweh describing His Son who is going to be given the ends of the earth as His possession. David never possessed the ends of the earth. This goes beyond David. It points forward prophetically to a true and better David, to an ultimate David, a greater David, Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 2 functions as a prophecy of Jesus a thousand years before Jesus was born. In fact, this psalm is quoted many times in the New Testament. You could jot these references down: Acts 4, Acts 13, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, Revelation 12 and Revelation 19. New Testament writers loved psalm too. They had it in their mouth often, and every time it was invoked, it was taken as a prophecy of Jesus Christ third feature I want you to be aware of this morning is poetry. There's a symmetry and an intentional structure in the way that this psalm was given. And our English translations draw our attention to this. There are four stanzas in Psalm 2. Each each stanza being three lines. There's a symmetry here. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through... Uh, The structure of the sermon is going to be the structure of the psalm. These four stanzas, I'm going to give a heading to summarize each stanza. And we're going to walk through this passage through these four stanzas. Stanza number one, heading number one, verses one through three, will be the raging of the nations. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Stanza number one, verse one through three. The raging of the nations. Stanza 2, verses 4 through 6, the coming wrath of God. Stanza number 3, verses 7 through 9, the sovereignty of the Son. And then the final stanza, stanza number 4, verses 10 through 12, will be the summons of grace, the call to respond. So we're going to unpack Psalm 2 together and we're going to start with that first stanza, first heading this morning. The Raging of the Nations. Here's your question. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? Psalm 2 tells us what's wrong with the world that we live in. You ever wonder that question? What's wrong with this world? Psalm 2 answers this question. It shows us that that there is a universal hostility in this world. The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting against the Lord and against His Christ. They're being led by kings and rulers. The peoples of the earth who are divided about all kinds of things. I mean, think about how many different ideas nations and peoples have. We're divided in all kinds of ways. But there's a universal unity in hostility towards God. Now isn't that interesting? That people that can't agree about hardly anything else can can band together in this rebellion against God and against His anointed. This universal hostility is as old as the Garden of Eden. And it has continued through every human generation. And it will continue. The raging nations will continue. The plotting of the peoples will continue until the final day. Psalm 2 tells us this world is at war with God. This world is at war with its creator, with its king, and with its judge. Psalm 2 tells you what's wrong with the world. It also explains what's wrong with our nation. We have a reference here in Psalm 2 to the kings of the earth, the rulers who are leading the peoples in this rebellion. The nation that we live in, our nation, has been led by its rulers to conspire against its creator, to plot against God, to rage against the Lord. In fact, in the words of Psalm 94, our nation has framed injustice by statute. We do more than just disobey God in America. We legalize our disobedience to God. We legislate our rebellion. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the peoples. Historically, this has been going on for a long time in the United States. In the history of our nation, our nation has said collectively, legally, legislatively that African Americans are three-fifths of a human being. That's America. You ever, you ever wonder what God thinks about that? He calls it raging against the Lord, plotting against God. That happened in our nation. And it wasn't just some racist guy making a racist comment to somebody down, walking down the street, our legislators said that African Americans were three-fifths of a human being in America. And in case you think, man, we're way past all that stuff, and we're certainly thankful that that's not the case in America any longer, our rulers still lead in this rebellion. Right now, in America... Over 600,000 babies are murdered in the womb every single year in our nation. In our Supreme Court, the rulers of our nation, instead of protecting the most vulnerable citizens in this country, they protect a woman's right to choose. This is how murder is being redefined in our nation. What ought to be the safest place for a baby in the womb of its mother? Our Supreme Court says a woman has the right to choose. And even worse than that, the radicalized left have redefined the murder of unborn children as reproductive justice. That's the nation that we live in. Woe to us. Woe to the nation that calls murder justice. The kings of the earth. The rulers raging, plotting, and rebellion against God. It doesn't stop there. Our nation preaches the LGBTQ gospel to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. The legalization of homosexual marriage. The ramming down the throat in the citizens of this nation of of, of transgender nonsense. What is that? The nation is raging. Psalm 2 tells you what's wrong with America. The rulers are raging. The peoples are plotting, politically, against God. Psalm 2 also tells us what's wrong with us. It tells you what's wrong with the world, tells you what's wrong with our nation, and it tells you what's wrong with you. Say, what do you mean? Our problem is deeper than political. It's personal. It's personal. The root of our problem is revealed in verse 3. I'll read it again. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why? This is the the answer to the question why. Why does unregenerate humanity hate God? And the answer to that question is They hate His bonds and His cords. They hate His bonds and they hate His cords. That's a reference to God's authority. The moral laws of God that He imposes upon us as our Creator and our King. That's exactly what unregenerate humanity hates about God. And that's really important because many times what you'll see is that people don't hate the concept of God. You say, you believe in God? Yeah, sure. I believe in God. Many people don't hate the concept of God until you open the book and you start getting down to the cords and the bonds that he's placed upon us in his word. The thou shalt and the thou shalt Nots of holy scripture. So when things are theoretical and there's this good God that created the world, many people don't have a problem with that. But every unregenerate heart hates it when God exercises His authority as our King. Another way to say this is it's easy to love a God that you make up in your own mind. But Psalm 2 tells you that the unregenerate That by nature, we hate the God of the Bible. By nature, we hate the God of the Bible. They view, in verse 3, the raging nations, they view the Lord's bonds and His cords as a prisoner's shackles that we got to throw off of us. God's word tells us that his commandments are for our good. That our God is good. That his laws are righteous. But these rebellious raging peoples see the Lord's authority as a prisoner's slavery. They must throw away these bonds. They must burst these bonds. Let us burst their bonds. Let us cast away their cords from us. That is a universal cry. And if you want to put a banner over it, it's called humanistic autonomy. The cry that self would be king. That self would be God. This this raging scream that God will not be my king. This is the root of all sin. This is what's wrong with the world. This is what's wrong with our nation and this is what's wrong with us. A rebellious heart towards God. A rebellious heart towards God. The Bible says that every person in their natural state has this heart. Flip, flip with me really quick to Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and listen to God's Word. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is how God's Word describes the masses. Those who are outside of Jesus Christ. They do not submit to God's law. There's a hostility, a hatred within them towards God. Indeed, they cannot submit to God's law. Every one of us in this room this morning, we have to learn that our greatest problem is not what's around us in our culture and in our environment. Our greatest problem is what's within us, our own wicked heart of rebellion against God. Psalm 2 tells us that sinners have done more than, oh yeah, I made a few mistakes in my life. You talk about yourself like that downplaying the sinfulness of sin. Oh yeah, I've made a few mistakes in my life and you know nobody's perfect. Psalm 2 tells us that every one of us have to come face to face with this reality. You've done more than fallen a little bit short. You've committed treason against the High King of Heaven. You have personally attempted to dethrone God. Cast His cords away from me. He will not be my king. And dare I say, even de-God God. You tried to take away God's godness. Over and over and over again. That's the heart of rebellion. This is what's wrong with the world. How will God respond? Stanza number two tells us that there's a coming wrath upon the raging of The nations look at verse four. The nations are raging, and verse four tells us that God is seated in the heavens. Now, now we've learned a little bit about who man is in the first three verses. Now we're going to get a a glimpse about who God is. Nations rage; God stays sitting down. This is a reference to his unchangeableness. He is unmoved. He doesn't feel threatened at all. He's seated in the heavens. He's not worried about this rebellion at all. In fact, we read that the one who is seated in the heavens laughs. The one who is seated in the heavens laughs. Now every one of us are born into this world With certain thoughts about God that are wrong. That God's word over, you know, over our lifetime purges us of these wrong ideas about God. And very few of us in this room were born with the ideas and a concept of a God who mocks the wicked. Very few of us. He who sits in the heavens laughs at those who rebel against Him. Now I want you to understand what's going on here. What this doesn't mean and what it does mean. The God of the Bible laughs at the wicked. This is not a laughing at at the punishment, the eternal punishment for sinners. As though God casts sinners into the eternal lake of fire and then laughs at them. As they torment forever and ever and ever. This is not Humor regarding the punishment of sin. In fact, Ezekiel 18 verse 23 tells us that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn and live. This laugh in Psalm 2 is a mocking and a taunt not at the punishment of sin, but at the folly of sin. Of how absurd sin is. How insane This rebellion is. This cosmic treason. That these men and women of dust would rise up in rebellion against the high King of heaven, the uncreated God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He sees the strongest, the collective attempts of the nations, the strongest attempts to overthrow His rule. They're so pitifully weak in his sight that the Lord laughs in hilarity at the absurdity of the insanity of rebellion against God. This is kind of like the mocking or the taunting at the Tower of Babel where rebellious humanity engaged in a plot to build a monument to human rebellion, with a tower with its tops in the heavens, and God's word mocks the Nimrod and the Babel kingdom and the builders of the tower of the tower. The Bible says that the Lord came down to see this tower. What was so high in the eyes of man? God has to come down from His lofty place just to see. This, 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 this is a mock and a taunt of human rebellion. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not worried at all. Psalm 2 says that there will be a time of laughing where the Lord will permit His authority to be challenged in this world. We see it all around us. Psalm 2 tells us that the nations are raging right now and God's allowing them to rage. He's allowing them to plot. And right now He's laughing, He's mocking, He's taunting them, the folly of this rebellion. But I want you to notice in verse 5 the word then. There will be a transition, Psalm 2 says, from a time of laughing to a time of speaking. There will be a transition from this quiet sovereignty of God where He allows the nations to rage and there will be a transition to where the High King of heaven speaks to the wicked in His wrath. This is a reference to the final judgment. He will speak. He will terrify them with His fury. And when He speaks on that day, it will not be a gentle voice. He will terrify the wicked with the fury of His wrath. And so brothers and sisters, I want you to be sure of this. God will not allow the rebellion of this world to go unpunished forever He's telling you in Psalm 2 that there's coming a day where he's going to speak to the rebellious, speak to the wicked in his wrath. And, And this is one of the things that the church prays many different times in God's word. Psalm 94, the church prays, O God of vengeance, shine forth. How long, O Lord, until you repay the proud of the earth? So you repay the proud what they deserve. Psalm 2 says just a little bit longer. And the God of vengeance will shine forth. And He will repay the proud what they deserve. One of the things you may have noticed reading through the Scriptures is this phrase is repeated so often that God's people would know it, would remember it often, that the Lord will judge the earth in righteousness. He really will. He will not allow allow the rebellion to go on forever. The Lord, the One seated in the heavens, He will judge the earth in righteousness. John Calvin says this, Right now the wicked may be as wicked as they please, but soon they will know what it is to make war on heaven. Soon they will know what it is to make war on heaven. Verse 6 tells us that provision is already made for the final judgment. Provision has already been made. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God's response to the rebellious nations. Is as though God says this, you want to make war against me? God says, my king is on the throne and he's ready to execute judgment. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the warning to the rebellious nations. Stanza number three begins in verse seven. And after God references this king that he's installed on his holy hill, he references this eternal decree beginning in in verse 7, going all the way to verse 9. And and this morning, one of the things I want you to be thankful for is this is a privilege that God would reveal, that God would make known. What what this is in verse 7? Through nine, is this is a conversation in eternity between God the Father and God the Son. This holy inner Trinitarian communication, this eternal decree in Psalm 2 is that though we get a front row seat to listen to the 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 Trinity itself communicate with each other, the persons of the Godhead in communication. You see, the Lord in verse 7 is a reference to God the Father. And the me in verse 7 is a reference to God the Son. Psalm 2 shows us what God the Father says to his beloved Son by eternal decree. Verses 7 through 9 show us that God has planned to bring about salvation and judgment through His Messiah, His Son, the One who He set on His holy hill. This is God's decree. means it will never change. It will never be overthrown. It's not God's plan B. It was the plan all along to execute salvation and judgment through His Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Father calls his Messiah in verse seven, his son. The Lord said to me, "You are my son." And then he speaks about the day of the Son's begetting. "Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you." The apostles, the New Testament writers love that phrase. "You are my son." They applied these words to Jesus Christ. God the Father speaking to Jesus Christ. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. The Apostle Paul in Acts 13 interprets this phrase. Today I have begotten you as referring to the resurrection and the enthronement Of the beloved Son of God. I want you to hear it in Acts 13. Beginning in verse 32. Quoting Psalm 2. God's Word says this. And we bring you the good news. That what God promised to the fathers. This He has fulfilled to us their children. By raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Apostle Paul says. Psalm 2 prophesied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With those words. Today I have begotten you. It's a reference to the enthronement of Jesus. The Son of God. The Father loves His Son. The Father sets His Son on the holy hill as King forever. He loves His Son. He raises His Son from the dead. And then He enthrones His Son as the High King of the universe. There are many parents in this room, many parents in this room that love their children, and rightly so. And I want us to remember that the Father loves His Son infinitely more than we will ever love our children. The Father loves His beloved Son. He loves His Son. I want you to see the pleasure of the Father with these words in verse 8. He says, ask of Me. Ask of Me. It's like, you see this glimpse into His pleasure is He wants to give the Son the inheritance. He says, Ask of me, my son, and I will give the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. The father loves the son. He longs to give the fullness, the inheritance to his son. He says, Ask of me. This is the decree that the inheritance would be given to the son. What is the inheritance? The nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth, verse 8, as your possession, literally your property. That this Messiah, this Son, this King, this glorious enthroned Son of God would own everything, no exceptions. That everything would be His, that everything in the created order and every human being would belong to the Son. This is the universal dominion of the Son of God. Universal sovereignty of the Son of God. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Now I want to blow your mind for a minute that those words are spoken by the God-man. They have to be. Because if they're spoken by the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, all authority's always been His. But something was given to the Son when He was raised from the dead. The fullness of the inheritance was given to a man, a glorified man who reigns at the right hand of God. Do you see how beautiful this is? That there's not one ounce of authority in all the created order that doesn't reside in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the enthroned Son of God, universal sovereignty, all authority in heaven and on earth. And I'll tell you right now, I'll tell you right now, we cannot fully understand how glorified Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father. It cannot fit into our brains. It cannot. I could give you a mission, somebody in this room, and I could say for the next century, we want you to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, meditating on the glory of Christ in heaven. The glorified Son of God. And you could spend a hundred years with God's Word burning in your soul, meditating on the exalted state of Jesus Christ, and heaven would respond, nope, He's higher than that. Still higher than that. We can't do it justice. The exalted state of the Son of God. Isaiah prophesied that this baby would be born named Mighty God. And Isaiah 9 says the government would be upon His shoulders. That He would have all authority. Isaiah goes on to say of the increase of His government, there would be no end. No end. How beautiful is a glimpse of His dominion. Of the increase of His government. There will be no end. This enthronement of Jesus. We're getting a glimpse this morning of the the exalted state Of Jesus Christ. The granting of the inheritance. Universal sovereignty. And I want you to note that this inheritance grounds two things in God's Word. Two realities. Because Jesus is King and He's absolutely sovereign. Both of these realities are absolutely certain. Number one, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It will be fulfilled. His bride will be called out from all the nations of the earth. The elect will be gathered in. Not might happen, will happen. Why? Because Jesus is King. And all authority is His. This is why He promises that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It grounds this fulfillment as absolutely certain Because Jesus is at the right hand of God. The Great Commission will be finished. It will be a successful mission. Number two, it also grounds this reality. The final judgment of the wicked. The final judgment of the wicked. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ has been anointed as both Savior and Judge. And there are texts that draw attention to both of these realities. Savior, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Next thing out of Jesus' mouth. Go disciple the nations. He's going to use this authority for the mission of the church. He's been anointed as the Savior. He's going to use His power at the right hand of God to save Sinners. But there are other texts that highlight that he has also been anointed as judge. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Listen to these words God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus' exalted state is assurance to every human being that every one of us will be judged by God. He will judge the world in righteousness and He will do so by a man. Christ is King in these two ways. He has power to save sinners and Christ has power to subject sinners. He has power to save and power to to judge. Which one does Psalm 2 highlight? I would say the first aspect is not completely absent from Psalm 2. Christ's power to save. This psalm ends... With a call to take refuge in this king. It's not completely absent. But Psalm 2 highlights the second aspect. The exaltedness of Jesus. The universal authority that's been given to Jesus. Unto the judgment of the raging nations. Now I know what some of you are thinking. What about Shane and Shane? What about that Shane and Shane song? And I'm thinking it too because I love that song. I love to sing that song. Asking I'll give the nations to you. And we celebrate that. That King Jesus will be brought this gift. This all nations bride. Uh, And and, and it's true. It's true. There's an aspect of that. It's true. Psalm 2 highlights the other side of that. I want you to understand how terrifying this is. I want you to understand how terrifying that that transition is from verse 8 to verse 9. Jesus has given universal sovereignty, universal dominion. And the next thing the Father says to His Holy Son, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2 is a terrifying revelation of the Son's sovereign power to judge the nations. To judge the nations. This is why if you have a study guide this morning, you'll see that I've titled the sermon as a play off the famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Christ. Sinners in the hands of an angry Jesus, an angry Son. Psalm 2 shows us that God has decreed that not only salvation, but also judgment must be brought about by the Son of God. I'll read these texts quickly. John 5, verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Remember, Acts 17 says that Jesus will execute this judgment as a man. Terrifying. There's a glorified God-man that's going to smash clay pots to pieces at the right hand of God. Isaiah 11 verse 4 says this about Jesus. He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. Revelation 19. Add these to your list of things that we we weren't born into this world thinking like this about Jesus Christ. We have to have God's word purge us of these silly thoughts about Jesus. G- Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not, so, not anymore. Exalted God man. At the right hand of the Father, eyes like a flame of fire, voice like the sound of many waters, with a rod of iron in His hand. Revelation 19, verse 15, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 9, Psalm 2. In that day, I want you to see the terrifying imagery. Sober imagery. On that day, the glorified Jesus will swing a rod of iron and smash the unrepentant Like a potter smashes a clay vessel. The imagery of pots smashed to smithereens into a thousand pieces shows us that the unrepentant they will be irreparably broken. You break your arm, you put it in a cast, four weeks later, you're just fine. I want you to understand this imagery. If we smashed a glass bowl into a thousand pieces and I handed it to a child in this room and I said, put it back together. No hope. It will never be the same. There is no hope. Irreparably broken. Struck by the Son of God. The same ones in verse 3 who, said, who, who cried out in rebellion to God and they said, let us cast His cords far from us. Revelation 6 tells us that these same same ones will say, Let the rocks fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Now that's quite a transition. Strutting through this world in rebellion to God. Stand before the glorified God-man and they're in terror of the coming judgment. It's a terrifying picture of Jesus Christ. Terrifying picture of Jesus Christ. And maybe you say this morning, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be that clay pot smashed to pieces with a rod of iron. I don't want to be judged by God for my rebellion. This last stanza calls you to respond this morning to the grace of God. Beginning in verse 10, We are admonished to be wise and be warned. You've seen this coming judgment, the coming wrath of God displayed through His Son. Be wise and be warned. Now I want to remind you that unless Jesus came as the Lamb of God who died for sinners, there could never be a summons like this. Ever, ever, ever. There could never be a call of grace for sinners. But He did come as the Lamb. He did die for sin. And this psalm has shown us that this day of wrath is coming, but this final stanza reminds us that there's a door of mercy that is open. You don't have to be judged by God. You don't have to be smashed to pieces by Jesus Christ. There is mercy. But you must respond urgently. Be wise and be warned. I want you to ask yourself this question this morning with Judgment Day seriousness, with the kind of seriousness and soberness that you would have wished you would have had as you stand at the final judgment before King Jesus. Are you saved? Are you saved? If you died tonight, would you wake up in hell tomorrow? Do you know the Son of God? Are you saved? And if you answered yes to that question, yes, I believe I am. I am saved. I want you to think more carefully. Saved from what? Saved from what? Many times you'll hear people talk about salvation as though it were being saved from bad circumstances. That I got in this car wreck one time and I was this close to death, but God got me out of it. Praise the Lord. I was a drug addict. I was at the very bottom of the bottom of the bottom. But the Lord delivered me. I had a hellacious childhood. I was scarred in all these different ways, but the Lord helped me. Now, stop right there. And we want to say praise to God. Praise to God that the Lord helped you in all of those ways. That's called common grace. That our God is kind to all. He's kind to all. He causes His rain to fall and His sun to shine on the just and the unjust. But my question is different. Have you been saved from the wrath of God? Psalm 2 shows you that this most terrifying reality set before you is the exalted Son of God with a rod of iron in His hand that smashes the unrepentant. You need to be saved from far more than difficult circumstances. You need to be saved from Christ. Sinners will be in the hands of an angry Christ. You must be saved from God. So be wise, verse 10. Be warned. Be wise and be warned. That call to wisdom makes some assumptions that those who have not submitted to Jesus have lived a life of foolishness. And so, if you're going to be wise today, I want to exhort you this morning to lay aside that foolish way of thinking. Stop trusting in your worldly wisdom and come to Jesus Christ with humility and a willingness for Him to teach you what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil. Be wise. And be warned this morning. Be warned. That assumes that you don't feel the reality of of this coming judgment like you ought to feel it. Be warned. Let it be urgent to you this morning the outcome of rebellion against Jesus. May you feel it in your bones. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Not just intellectually what will happen, but you're terrified at night when you think about standing before Jesus Christ. You feel the warning. You want to flee to Christ by faith. Be warned. And don't wait. Verse 12 mentions the possibility of angering the Son and perishing in the way. That's the language of you being cut down in the middle of the race. And I want to remind you, be warned. Don't wait to come to Christ. Your life can be suddenly taken from you. You can perish in the way. And then you will stand before Jesus don't wait be wise be warned verse 11 tells us to serve the lord with fear rejoice with trembling what's the proper response this last stanza it's telling you how to come to Christ it's telling you how to serve Jesus serve the lord with fear these are beautiful descriptions are we fearful or are we rejoicing Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice and trembling. Are we, are we fearful or are we rejoicing? Psalm 2 says yes. Yes, this is the gravity and the gladness of being in communion with the High King of Heaven. The One who angels hide their faces from. We're fearful of Him. At the same time, we're rejoicing in Him. Come to Christ with fear because Jesus is a King. Don't mistake Him this morning with a consultant. Jesus is a King. Come to Him with fear. He doesn't give you recommendations that you can take or leave. Come to Him with fear that He's your King. That He gives you commandments. Serve the Lord with fear. And yes, come to Him with joy. Now think about how sweet that phrase is in this psalm with these terrifying glimpses of Jesus Christ punishing the wicked. That God's Word doesn't want you to forget. Don't forget that He's good. Don't forget to come to Him with joy. Don't forget that there is none like Jesus. Don't forget that none has loved you like Christ. Come to Him with joy. Come to the King who washes sinners clean in His own blood. Verse 12 tells us to kiss the son. Kiss the son. Now, this is not the kiss on the cheek of friends. You know, as though I show up to church and say, Hey, Ravi, how you doing this morning? And I'll plant one on his cheek. A kiss of friendship. Which I don't do that. I'm not judging you if you do. I mean, I kiss my family on the cheek. Uh, But my friends, we don't, me and Ryan don't do a whole lot of cheek kissing. Okay? Uh, But if you do, no judgment. uh, This is not that. This is not the kiss of friendship. Kiss the sun, the imagery here, like a conquered subject comes before a great king and prostrates themselves on the floor and kisses the feet of the sovereign and says, I'm yours, all of me. It's a kiss of submission. It's a kiss of loyalty. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Bow to Jesus. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Verse 12 closes out this theme of blessedness in the preface to the book of Psalms. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Brothers and sisters all across the room, I hope this morning that you are reminded how blessed you are for having taken refuge in Jesus. And as we peered into the judgment of the wicked and the exalted Son of God executing a terrible judgment, I hope you're reminded by the Holy Spirit this morning that Jesus took that for you. How blessed you are this morning who have taken refuge in the Son of God. And this is the call of Psalm 2. There is no running from this King. There is no hiding from this King. There is no refuge from this King. But praise be to God, we can have refuge in this King. We can hide in this King. We can be saved in this King. And Jesus has promised to be a refuge, a saving refuge to all who come and trust in Him. Don't take refuge in anything else. Don't take refuge in your works in your performance or the fact that you're at church this morning. Make Jesus Christ your refuge in the Word of God. says, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Happy are you who trust in the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our voice this morning. And we ask that Your Word would bear fruit in our heart. God, I pray for the warnings that went out this morning from Psalm 2. And Lord, I pray that You would help weak, doubting saints, Lord. That You would help them not to doubt Your promises. Help them to run to Jesus Christ by faith. And Lord, I pray for the stubborn consciences this morning who have tried to seal themselves off from conviction of sin. God, I pray that You would disturb them this day. Holy Spirit, that You would come and that You would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And that You would cause them to flee to You, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.
0: Let's stand together and sing the Doxology. before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever and we all say Amen We dismiss